the immigration crisis and the crime crisis in our country is creating an unstable, chaotic situation that most Americans really want to fix. So what is going on? What are the policies that are causing all of this? And what can we do to fix it. We're going to go through everything that's happened in the past week or so since Title 42 has gone away, resulting in a surge of migrants at the southern border, all the problems there. Um, but I'm also going to talk to a crime expert, Barry Latzer. He is a professor. He's written several books on the criminal justice system in America. And we're going to take a look at that, a really fascinating look at that. And he's going to propose some very real, uh, very viable solutions for how how we can actually reduce crime in the United States. And he and I will also discuss this terrible story of Jordan Neely and now Daniel Penny, who is being charged with manslaughter for that whole subway debacle that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. So really important, really good episode that I think that you're going to learn a lot from. It's brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers, which is American meat delivered right to your front door. Go to GoodRanchers.com. Use code Allie for a discount. GoodRanchers.com. Code Allie. Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Wednesday. Hope everyone's having a wonderful week. Uh, make sure you go back and listen to yesterday's episode, my interview with Holly Simon about the terrible tragedy that they had to endure at their family farm in Fort Smith, Arkansas. It might seem like a random local story that I'm telling you, but it really has bigger implications. We're talking about people's lives. So make sure that you contact the people that we gave you the contact information for to make sure that we ensure the resignation of Rita Watkins. Um, that's It's just a way that we can share arrows with someone who shares our values and is seeking justice, not just for her family, but also seeking protection for her community. All right. Today, we are going to uh, talk about this migrant crisis that is happening, much thanks to Biden's border policies or lack of border policies. And we're also going to talk about the problems within our criminal justice system with our guest. We're going to discuss the Jordan Neely situation, the former Marine Daniel Penny putting him in a headlock, um, accidentally killing him because Penny was or uh, because Neely was harassing the people in the subway cart. So like what led to then this former Marine being charged with manslaughter, facing 15 years of prison, while this guy who never should have been out of jail was free to harass people in the subway. We're going to talk about the entire system that led to something like that and what the solutions could possibly be. Then we'll get his insight a little bit on the history of immigration. Very, very fascinating conversation. But before we get into the criminal justice so-called conversation and the immigration conversation with Mr. Latzer. I did just want to give you an update, some stats, some recent stories about what is going on at our border, why this actually matters, and why this is one of those topics where the weaponization of toxic empathy can be really effective, I think, especially for Christian women who are just kind of um, they decontextualize that verse that Christians should care for the or that we should care for the foreigners, that we should care for the sojourners because we were once sojourners. That, of course, is what um, Israel is told in the Old Testament by the Lord. But 
that is completely decontextualized from the rest of the policies uh, that centered on migrants and foreigners and sojourners in ancient Israel and also just ignores the truth of the dangers of illegal immigration and also just mass migration in general. It is not compassionate to be for liberal border policy. It is not compassionate to just say, yes, you should come to our country to have a better life simply because you want to. It's not compassionate and And it's also dumb because if you care about the cohesiveness, the stability of your country, which I believe that we are called to care about as people who love our neighbors, as people who have been providentially purposely placed in the city, in the state, in the country in which we dwell, if we care about the stability of a country, we have to care about the sovereignty of the country because without sovereignty of a country, there is no legitimate basis for law enforcement. There's no legitimate basis for citizenship. There's no legitimate basis for unique rights that are afforded to people because they're citizens. And without that, you don't have a nation. And if you don't have a nation, you have no entity that can actually keep you collectively secure. No one looking out for the best interest of their constituents, of the people that they were actually elected or appointed to lead. That's a problem. God created nations. He created the borders. He created these human systems. We read in Romans 13 that governments were actually put in place to be tools for good, to be punishers of wrongdoing. There is a goodness and a righteousness in that, in these systems called governments and nations, which have to be held together by borders and sovereignty. So when you ignore that, when you let that fly out the window, You're not only lacking compassion for the people that you're incentivizing to come here in a very dangerous way and uh, putting the people at the border, the American citizens at at risk there. Um, You are also forsaking God's good idea of nations and borders and people groups. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on. We've already covered this. I think we covered it a little bit last week, at the end of last week, that last Thursday, May 11th, was the final day that Title 42 would be in effect. effect, Title 42 was a holdover from President Trump's immigration policy that allowed officials to turn away migrants on public health emergency grounds during the COVID-19 pandemic. Biden tried to end Title 42 last year, but Republicans sued him, arguing that the restrictions were necessary for border security and the courts ruled to keep it in place. But now that Biden has announced the end of national COVID-19 emergencies three years later, the border restrictions have now gone away. And I do wonder if that was actually why they got rid of the national COVID emergency policies, simply so they could have a basis for getting rid of Title 42 and allowing the surge of migrants. The AP reports that now there will be strict consequences for trying to cross illegally. They will not be allowed to return for five years and can face criminal prosecution if they do. But that doesn't seem to be what's going on. There are some reporters that have gotten some footage from the border. They see these migrants coming coming in and they are processed and they're given these kind of court dates to say, yeah, you have to come back and we'll, you know, process your request for asylum and things like that. And these people aren't really seeking asylum. They say that they're asylum seekers. They say that they're refugees, but there are actual definitions to that. You're not an asylum seeker or refugee just because you're coming here for a better life. That would be everyone in the world then. Um, Wanting a better job is not seeking asylum. That could be a reason to try to legally migrate somewhere, but that's not a justification for being able to 
um, illegally cross into a place to try to seek some kind of refuge. Having a hard life is not a good enough reason to be able to come here just because you want to. So reporter Taylor Hansen, he has seen some of these documented, some of these court dates, these uh, documents that these migrants are getting. They're also given a government issued cell phone. And um, apparently it is pre-programmed with some kind of app that keeps track of them. I'm not sure how effective that is, but some of these court dates apparently are as late as 2027. And most of these people don't show up for their court dates. And there's no consequences, really, if you don't show up for your court dates. There's no guaranteed consequences. And so it's all just a joke. So here's a video of some of these migrants who just crossed the border saying that they need to be here for whatever reason, given these government-issued phones. All right. Uh, this is also leading, as you can imagine, to an overcrowding of these migrant facilities. We saw that terrible story in Brownsville, Texas, a couple weeks ago where there was someone who looked like a migrant himself. He was definitely Hispanic. I don't know what country he was a citizen of, but he took his car and he rammed through a group of migrants outside this migrant facility, killing several of them, including children. And part of this is because these places are just overwhelmed. I mean, they have so many migrants because these migrants are incentivized to come. They know that it's pretty easy to get over our border um, just because border security isn't well-funded and Biden isn't doing his part. So it's basically just Texas that's trying to like hold the line here. And, um, and so this leads to all kinds of dangers. This leads to all kinds of poor health outcomes for these migrants who are here. Um, so here's a, here's a video of a very overcrowded facility in El Paso. What do you notice about that, by the way? Those are all men, all grown men. Now, maybe this was just a this is just a shot of where the men are. Maybe the men and women are separated. All of a sudden, we pretend like we know the difference between male and female when it comes to migrant facilities. But these are all grown men. They're not starving, clearly. Um, they've got their clothes on. They've got their shoes on. They're ready to come into America because they claim that they need to be here. This also just this picture alone just signifies one of the issues with mass migration is that these countries um, that they are fleeing from experience something called brain drain. And that is when all of the people with any means or any just kind of um, like mental coherence leave those countries to go to another country, making the countries that they leave even worse. I understand that El Salvador and Colombia aren't great places to live for a variety of reasons. El Salvador is trying to clean itself up right now with some tough on crime policies. But I mean, that doesn't mean that these people have a right to come here. It also doesn't mean that it's actually beneficial for America or for the places that they're leaving. So it's just bad all around. Um, agents were told to begin releases in any areas holding facilities that were at 125% capacity. Uh, this is according to the AP or the average time in custody exceeded 60 hours. So they just have to be released. 
They were also told to start releasing these men, mostly men, if 7,000 migrants were taken into custody across the entire border in any one day. Like, so you see that a secretary Mayorkas, who claims, by the way, that the border is totally secure, who claims that everything is fine, like you see that they might have they might have some kind of policies in place ostensibly, but they're all being any kind of security is being broken if these quotas are reached, which they are. These people, they they hear about the policies in the United States and they come here based on how easy they think it's going to be to get across. And that's why we've seen such a surge since Biden became president, because they don't care. They actually want this. They like this. They like the chaos. They like the uh, reorganizing of cities. They like the change in demographics because they think that it's going to help them win more elections, either with integrity or not, and um, that it's going to help them achieve the agenda that they have. That's what it is. And so it's in part of it is because I like I said, this kind of toxic, warped, dumb, uh, fake empathy that makes people think that it's our responsibility to accept every single person in the world who wants to come here. No other country thinks that. Like, you don't have a right to go to Zambia and to say, I'm just going to be here and take your resources and take your jobs. You don't have a right to go to other countries and do that. And like, we're okay with African countries, you know, kicking an American out who says that they're entitled to be there, but we're not okay with saying it when it comes to protecting our own sovereignty. It doesn't make any sense. Um, Okay, I'm going to get more into this in just a second. Let me pause and tell you about our first sponsor for the day. That's Adele Natural Cosmetics. And you guys know, I absolutely love this company. I've been using their skincare for a very long time. I switched to them a few years ago when I was really doing nothing to take care of my skin. And I started using their oil facial cleanser. I stopped using like the harsh soap with the harsh fragrances and things like that. I think I was literally using like Vaseline as my moisturizer. And I started actually caring about what I was putting on my skin. And I feel really good using Adele Natural Cosmetics because they really are natural. It's all handmade in the U.S., by this family, um, who, by the way, they're pro-life, they're Christians, they're very outspoken about that, but they really care about every single ingredient that is put in their products. It is all natural, and there's never any nasty chemicals. There's never any nasty fragrances. You can read the ingredients on the back of the bottle. It's all I use for my um, facial cleanser and for my moisturizer, and it really does help. And I use a lot of their makeup, too, because it works well as well. Go to AdeleNaturalCosmetics.com. Enter code Allie for 25% off your first order. AdeleNaturalCosmetics.com. Code Allie for 25% off your first order. AdeleNaturalCosmetics.com. Code Allie. So the memo that is calling for the release of these migrants, if these facilities, you know, reach the seven or reach the uh, 125% capacity or whatever, it's called the parole with conditions practice. It's a process that's typically reserved for urgent humanitarian reasons or significant public benefit. Um, But that is not really the justification that's going on here. That's not really applicable. And Stephen Miller is a senior advisor to President Trump. He's founder of America First Legal. He was talking about this on Fox Business last week, and he's 
big immigration hawk. He talks about this a lot. He um, he talks about the Fox News report that they don't get an alien registration number. These people who were released in the name of parole and they don't receive a court date. And he says we are living through the Democrats in game. They have been systemically stripping away every last piece of the Trump immigration policies for the last two years. And they're replacing it with something called the parole scheme. And it's a scheme whereby an illegal alien, he says, is paroled into the country, given a two year immunity from deportation and the chance to apply for a work permit. The Biden administration is trying to push as many illegal aliens into the parole system. It's a DACA-like benefit to try to legalize illegal immigration. That is what they have been working towards for two years. And now we are seeing people from around the world trying to get their amnesty benefits. And that's true. Like I've seen the pictures, the videos of the Chinese, all grown men, again, Chinese migrants trying to get in through the southern border because of Biden's policies. Um, the Florida Attorney General, there's been some legal pushback, sued the Secretary of Homeland Security, Al uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, and the Biden administration um, uh, over this. I mean, basically, you know, because this is causing a lack of security, it's a dereliction of duty from the federal government. And um, uh, there is a big fear of the security risk of this, and this is a legitimate fear. There is an Afghan national that is on the FBI's terror watch list that was arrested this week as he was crossing the border near San Diego with a group of migrants. Of course, guys, like think through this a little bit. Like, push past the superficial definitions of empathy that are being used to simply emotionally extort you and manipulate you. And think about this. If you are letting through surges of people without any background checks, without any kind of accountability whatsoever, you are going to get terrorists. Yes, you are going to get very dangerous people that are not only a terror to immigrants in this country, it's a terrorist to citizens in this country, it's a terror to everyone. There's no compassion in allowing these people unchecked to surge into our country. It is a recipe for chaos. It's immoral. The New York Post reported that a previous order to let migrants go with notices to report to ICE had been tried in 2021, was unsuccessful as thousands of those migrants simply didn't ever check in. It is an absolute mess. Secretary Mayorkas, though, for his part, he's saying that everything is going absolutely swimmingly, loves it. He says that the border is totally secure. Recently said, I think it was in a te his testimony before Congress that, well, you know, a million people were deported last year. It doesn't really matter how many people were deported doesn't really matter. It matters how many people actually got in. So you can't say that the border is secure just because a certain number of people got deported. It What really tells us whether the border is porous or secure is how many people were actually able to get in. And the stats say that 1.5 million gotaways, there are 1.5 million gotaways at the border under the Biden administration. Wow. This is illegal. These are illegal immigrants who have um, who are known to have entered the country but had not been caught. So we're going to see, of course, even more of this. Um, Fox News is also reporting that in the past two days, in the past two days, uh, there were six arrests, six arrests of people on the FBI's terror watch list. Awesome. 2023, 88. I'm glad the FBI is doing their job when it comes to this. 
But how many of them were in that group of 1.5 million gotaways? This is something that we should care about, right? Um, Biden himself doesn't seem to know what's going on or where he is or what his job title is. He says that things are great. Here he is. Okay, so you probably couldn't hear what he said because it was there were press in there yelling. But um, someone asked him, what do you think about the border? He said, it's getting much better. You see it? It's getting much better. Probably didn't know. He's probably talking about, I don't know, the border of the construction paper craft that his handlers had him do that morning as a brain exercise. Um, so in New York City, they are sending migrants to public school gyms. The parents of the kids who attend those schools um, are like, um, I'm sorry. What what exactly is happening here? Uh, there was this horrible story. And this just goes to show, again, no compassion for anyone involved when we allow these kind of policies to flourish. This is according to the Tampa Bay Times that a teen died after a seizure at a migrant shelter. A 17-year-old from Honduras, Angel Eduardo Maradiaga Espinoza, died during his sleep, likely due to having an epileptic seizure in his sleep and becoming unconscious. The teen had been transferred by the HHS Office of Refugee Resettlement to the Safety Harbor Migrant Shelter run by Gulf Coast Jewish Family and Children's Services in Florida. He was in the process of being placed with his cousin in Tampa, his sponsor in the U.S. But look, because they don't have the resources, we've got too many people there. And so we're incentivizing these very, very dangerous tracks. We do not have the resources to be able to care for these people. In a lot of cases, we're handing them off to nonprofits who are willing to do good service and to help, but we can't handle it. And so we're putting people at risk, not to mention we're incentivizing, enabling the cartels, trafficking the guns, trafficking the drugs, trafficking the human beings, raping and assaulting and impregnating these young girls. You're encouraging all of that when you take away strict border policy that encourages these people to come in. And so it's all very, very sad. It is a complete dereliction of duty. Even the most libertarian person among you should be able to recognize that it is at the very least the government's job to protect the border. It is at the very least the government's job to care for the safety and the security of his country first, first, before you even consider the well-being of people from other countries, before you even consider the interests of people of other countries, you should be prioritizing relentlessly and unabashedly the safety, security, and interests of your country first. That doesn't mean that you hate other countries. It doesn't mean that you think that you're inherently better than other countries. It just means that you're responsible, that you are actually taking the job that God has given you, according to Romans 13, seriously and righteously. I just, I, as you can tell, I just have like such an impatience and intolerance towards Christians who think they're being loving by being for liberal border policy and thinking it's hateful and it's unchristian to not be or to be America first or whatever. Look, you feed your family, even though you don't feed everyone else's family, right? You lock your doors. You live with walls up. You don't let just anyone into your house that wants to come in there just because they're having uh, a difficult night just because they might be hungry. Sure, you do other things to help those who are in need, but you don't let people into your house who just want to be there and sleep in your kid's bed, right? Does that mean 
you're a bigot? Does that mean you hate your neighbors? Does that mean that you aren't caring for the least of these? No, it just means that you are doing what you are called to do, which is steward the needs and the well-being and the safety of your family first. That's what God has called you to. And on a bigger level, because nations are like families, that's what the government is called to do. So this dereliction of duty is wicked. It's wicked. And not just when it comes to immigration, but when it comes to crime in general. The uh, failure of our officials to actually care for and protect the safety of the citizenry is wicked. And we're going to talk about why that is today with our guest. And he's going to get into all of the ins and the outs and the history of all of this, which is very interesting and what we can actually do to fix it. Before we get into that, let me tell you about our next sponsor. That is Public SQ. So we complained about the state of our country and how crazy things are a lot. And one thing that we can do is try to spend our money as best we can uh, supporting companies that align with our views, that align with our values, rather than supporting companies like, I don't know, Target, that are pushing like the trans agenda on kids. Public uh, SQ, Public Square, makes that really easy. You download the Public Square app that spell Public SQ, and you can find a local business to support, whether it's a coffee shop, whether it's a clothing store, or whether it's a just a kind of service that you are looking for that is run by someone who cares about the same things you do. You can also list your own business. So if you are a business owner, you want like-minded people to be able to follow you or to find you, um, then you can list your business on the Public Square app. I mean, they're doing a really, really good job in helping build this parallel freedom-loving economy that we should all be contributing to. So go to publicsq.com, publicsq.com. Download the app today, publicsq.com. Mr. Latzer, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, Before we get started, uh, could you tell us who you are and what you do? (laughs) I'm Barry Latzer. I'm an emeritus professor of criminal justice. I taught for over three and a half decades at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, which is a part of the City University of New York. I'm uh, retired, but very active writing. And my latest book is called The Myth of Overpunishment. It's about uh, imprisonment, and it's really a response to some of the progressive or woke claims about mass incarceration. Oh, I want to talk about that before we even talk about what we're really here to discuss, which is Title 42 and the immigration crisis. But I'm I'm very interested in the subject of your book because we hear a lot, even from those who consider themselves maybe on the right, libertarian, center right, that we do have a mass incarceration problem. And because we have a mass incarceration problem, that the solution to any of our crime issues in any of the cities is... Uh, not to put people in jail. It shouldn't be what they refer to as punitive justice. It should be restorative justice, social justice, all these kind of fluffy words. So you're saying that we don't have uh, an over-incarceration problem in the United States. Well, let me throw some numbers at you, and I'll be gentle on this now. It's hard for people to follow numbers. I know that. The uh, Census Bureau of the federal government does a crime victim survey every year. And it's an enormous survey as surveys go. They interview two, last time they did it, 
249,000 people. And uh, by way of contrast, you may notice that these political surveys done by the Gallup poll, for instance, always involve something less than 1,000 people. So the result is their survey is, that is the Census Bureau survey, is much more accurate. Well, based on this survey, each year we have 5.8 million violent attacks, 12.8 million property offenses, such as burglary or theft, for a total of over 18 million victimizations, criminal victimizations nationwide. Now, a lot of these attacks or victimizations are not reported. Fewer than half are reported to the police. Nevertheless, the police arrest millions of people, as you'd expect, mm -hmm. big country, a lot of criminals. Mm -hmm. In fact, they arrested uh, 10 million people in uh, 2019. My data is pre-pandemic because the pandemic threw things off, as you might imagine, and also because the uh, there's a lag in the reporting of the data. So in 2019, there were 10 million arrests made of criminal suspects. Of the 10 million, and here's the key point, you end up with 1.4 million put into jail. Jail is where you go after you're arrested mm -hmm. and you stay there usually just a few days until you are brought before a judge, that's called an arraignment. Mm -hmm. And when you're arraigned, usually you're released. So you only spend a few days in jail. Jails are short-term uh, short uh, institutions. Mm -hmm. What about the really serious offenders for whom there is a great deal of evidence that they committed a crime? 577,000 of them went into prison in 2019. So we have 18.6 million crimes, 10 million arrests, and only 577,000 people actually going into prison. Mm. So just on the face of it, you have to say, I think, it's not clear that there's mass incarceration here. In fact, only murderers stand a pretty good chance of being incarcerated. They have about a 49% imprisonment rate, those who commit murder. Only 49%? Are 49% yeah. of people who are charged with murder end up in prison? Of the crimes reported to the victim survey. Mm, so, okay. of course, murder victims obviously don't report to right. the survey. But we have the most accurate data for murders because you have dead bodies. So we know, the police know, and we know uh, how many murders there are uh, every year. Of course, for people who die from natural causes, there's a death certificate prepared by a physician, and we know that they're not murder victims. But we know how many murder victims there are every year, and the data on that, we have multiple sources, the police, the uh, Centers for Disease Control in Washington also keep those records. So we know pretty well how many murders there are. And 49% uh, of the murders 
are solved with people actually going to prison. For rape and robbery and aggravated assault, other ser- the, the other serious violent crimes, less than 6% of the incidents reported by victims lead to imprisonment. So these are extremely low figures. So when they talk about mass incarceration, one has to ask, well, really, compared to the number of crimes, this doesn't look like excessive incarceration. Mm -hmm. And that's because it isn't. Right. And you've written a lot about why we have the crime problems that we do. In your estimation, is it because we don't incarcerate enough people that we continue to have high crime? And especially in these kind of progressive cities with the progressive DAs and the progressive judges, you just see these serial criminals let out on the street. I mean, is is that what motivates people to continue to commit crimes? Because there's just very little punishment. Um, we, we haven't been doing this long enough to know yet, Allie, mm. to be perfectly honest. Uh, there are some preliminary studies that indicate that in cities where you have prosecutors who are excessively lenient, that it is a cause of increased crime. Hmm. Uh, But these are preliminary, it's provisional data. So to be perfectly candid, to be perfectly honest about these things, uh, we're not sure yet. However, I do know from my work on the history of crime that when in the late 1960s, the system was very lenient, police made relatively fewer arrests, Sentences were much shorter. Time served in prison was much reduced. When that happened, it was apparently a big spur, a big incentive to more crime. Mm -hmm. So we know from history that when the criminal justice system is weakened substantially, when they don't arrest or punish as many people, who are committing crimes, that is an incentive to more criminality. So that's not, you know, a shocking assertion or a shocking claim. That's what we'd expect. So I would think if we continue with a lot of lenient prosecutors, especially in big cities where there's a great deal of crime, if we continue to release people who commit crimes, I think that will serve to incentivize more crime. Because we do know that people who are in prison and are released do recidivate in very high numbers. Mm -hmm. In fact, Ali, 83% of those who are released from prison commit an additional crime, at least one, and are rearrested. 83%. That's a scary number. Yeah, there was, of course, that subway situation with a guy named Jordan Neely, who he ended up being killed by the Marine, put in a chokehold because he was harassing people, threatening violence and things like that. But I mean, he had been arrested apparently 42 times, one of them for assaulting an elderly woman. And so it's a disservice, not just to Jordan Neely, but also to the community around you when you don't have any mechanisms in place. Um, to apparently, or you're not willing to put the mechanisms in place yeah. uh, to really yeah. protect Absolutely. people in the name of social justice, Absolutely. I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. The, these so-called low-level crimes, um, 
can be serious, as was certainly the case with the woman who was assaulted. And even if it's not that bad, uh, if people on the street sense that there's no punishment at all, really, for doing these crimes, and you know, the police are not going to keep arresting people if there's no prosecution. So if a prosecutor like this Alvin Bragg in Manhattan, right. if he says, well, I'm not going to prosecute these quote, low-level crimes anymore. I don't want to fill up the jails and prisons. What will happen is the police won't arrest people who commit these offenses. Well, of course, that in and of itself causes more disorder in the streets mm -hmm. and probably, we don't know yet, probably incentivizes more serious offenses. So it's very disturbing. And by the way, the communities most affected by this are communities where you have high crime and high disorder. And those are often minority and poor minority communities. So who's really paying the price for this? Uh, not the more affluent people who have uh, gates around their communities, who have uh, security guards, uh, who have a means for self-protection, right. but rather the poorer people who don't. So. Uh, yeah, I think this is a, these are terrible policies, very misguided. Yeah. And in fact, not even necessary. It's just silliness. The really serious offenses, the ones filling up the prisons, they have to be prosecuted anyway. And even these woke prosecutors will say, well, of course, I'm going to go after the serious offenders. Yeah. And you know, you know, it's strange because... You see, though, that it's not just about keeping people out of prison because this Marine who put uh, Jordan Neely in a chokehold, he is he's charged with manslaughter. He's facing 15 years with prison. His name is right. Daniel Penny. So obviously, yes. if it was just about not prosecuting crime, if it was just about not putting people in prison, you wouldn't be criminalizing what a lot of people are calling self-defense. There was another, I think, a bodega owner who killed someone who was, he was actually being attacked with a knife. And this bodega owner killed the person who was trying to attack him and Alvin Bragg ended mm -hmm. up dropping the charges of murder, but I'm pretty sure that he was charged with murder. And so yeah. it's about criminalizing, uh, I think, self-defense in a lot of cases and not criminalizing things like assault. So I don't know, there's some That's... racial quotas behind it, but it's very strange. It's not just about emptying the prisons. No, absolutely. Because you could see this prosecutor's judgment and, you know, most of us and I think most of the public will think this judgment is warped. When you have this case with Neely, I think most people will consider Mr. Penny to be a hero rather than a criminal. We'll have to see if the grand jury, which of course is a Manhattan grand jury, and Manhattanites yeah. are known for being very liberal and, and, and very pro-democratic, which is why they elected Mr. Bragg in the yeah. first place. Right. We'll have to see what the grand jury does and of course, even if the grand jury were to indict him, it's that's formal accusation is what it amounts to, formal accusation of a felony. Even if they indict him, um, I suspect that uh, Mr. Penny is not going to take a plea and will go to trial. And if he does, then the public through speaking through a jury will have another chance yeah. to to acquit him. And, and I certainly hope they do. 
because uh, I, I think that he is something of a hero. Most people on the subway, if they see a person with obviously some sort of mental disorder acting out, well, they go the other way. You, you, you walk to the other end of the car so that you don't have to sit near him, and you get out perhaps in the next <laughs> subway stop and move to a different car altogether. This fellow Penny uh, uh, took initiative and protected his fellow riders. So I think most people are going to view him as a hero. Mm -hmm. But we'll see. We'll yeah. see what happens. I, so I agree with you. Yeah, go ahead. It's not just about, uh, you know, the, the emptying the jails. He's making a judgment here, too, that mm -hmm. this sort of behavior, which, as I say, can be really seen as heroic behavior, should be instead criminalized. So he's making judgments here. And at some point, I think the public will make a judgment on him when he has to stand for election and we'll see what happens. All right, let me tell you about Quinn's goat soap. I love Quinn's goat soap for a few reasons. One, because it's different than the soap that you're getting at the at the store that you're buying online, just the traditional soap that says that it's cleaning your skin. And it might be doing that, but it's not actually moisturizing your skin. It's filled with all these nasty chemicals that actually strip the important, uh, the important parts of your skin that are actually allowing your skin to be moisturized. So it dries you out. It can even cause different kinds of irritation. You think that you're using some kind of natural brand, but really when you look at the ingredients, it's really bad for you. But that's not the case with Quinn goat soap. Quinn's goat soap actually uses natural ingredients from goat milk. These are goats that they own themselves. Quinn, who started this business, he's only 15 years old. He wanted to buy goats a few years ago and start this company because he's very entrepreneurial. They take care of these goats. They milk these goats. They use that milk to then create their amazing natural really effective product. So it's not just hand soap. I love using their hand soap. Smells really good too, but it's body soap, it's shampoo, it's conditioner. They make all this stuff themselves. And this is a family, a company that cares about the things that you and I do. And they make really amazing natural products that are just so much better than what you're going to get from your standard brand in the store. So go to qpgoatsoap.com. Use code Allie for 10% off the total order. qpgoatsoap.com. Use code Allie for 10% off your total order. qpgoatsoap.com. Code Allie. People wonder why, you know, there's always those videos that go viral a lot of times on the New York subway, but other times it's at like a Walmart or something like that where someone is clearly harming someone else. They're attacking someone else. I saw this video not too long ago of a woman on a subway and this guy, he seemed really erratic. Um, I don't know if he was homeless or whatever, but he um, he was sitting next to this woman by herself and grabbed her by the back of the head and just held on to her hair. And she was looking around and she was saying, help me, help me. No one did anything. The person filming right. didn't do anything. No one around. And Okay, so we can all criticize them and say, you know, why wouldn't you do something? And then we look at what happened with Penny and we're like, well, that's why. Because it's not yeah. worth it to a lot of people to risk their jobs, risk their lives and go to jail because now self-defense or defending someone else is being criminalized. Yes. And that's a really yes. dangerous place to be. Yes, well put, well put. And by the way, in the criminal law, just to be technical about it legally, there is such a thing called defense of others. 
And you, you, in the theory of the criminal laws, if you come to the rescue of someone else, you're in the shoes, so to speak, of the person being victimized. Mm. You have the same rights that they do to defend themselves. That those rights are in effect transferred to you when you're acting to protect them. So yeah, you're right. It, it makes people say, well, gee, look what happened to this guy, Penny. He tried to help out and, and they branded him a criminal and prosecuted him for it. So sure, it, 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 discourages, uh, it discourages people from being good Samaritans and, yeah. and trying to help their fellow human beings. And uh, Lord knows we need more of that kind of mm -hmm. behavior, uh, especially in the big city where everything is anonymous and you have no friends to help mm -hmm. you. You have to rely often on strangers. And I I'm wondering what your kind of solution to this recidivism thing is, because you talk yeah. about even in the title of your book, you said a, a proposal to reduce incarceration while protecting the public. Because sometimes I think about this. OK, someone like Jordan Neely, he had all these past arrests, but we don't yes. believe in, you know, putting someone in jail for the rest of their lives for theft or even mm -hmm. assault. We don't believe that that should be a life no. sentence. And so sure. what is the solution besides just keeping someone in jail forever? If this man and others like him has serious mental disorder, then we have civil provisions, as they're called, non-criminal provisions, where we can hospitalize and institutionalize, except that 30, 40 years ago, they closed all the uh, mental hospitals. They closed all the hospitals that provided psychiatric care. Not all of them, I'm exaggerating, but many of them. Well, this, I think, is a big policy error uh, because there are many people who need continuing care. Probably uh, this, this Mr. Neely needed continuing care. That's why he was arrested over 40 times. So I think it would certainly be a help to the criminal justice system if people received mental health care instead of being left to their own devices, left on the streets, where if they don't take their meds, they may be acting out, they may have psychotic episodes, and they may harm themselves or others. So this is a very bad policy. Set aside the criminal justice policies that we were talking about, the lenient prosecutors. This notion that people who really need medical care should be left to their own devices, should be left free to do what they want, is really a, 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 dangerous, a dangerous policy, a very unwise policy. Uh, yes. People who are a, a risk to themselves or others, serious risk, as a result of mental disease, they need to be placed in an institution for people to get help, to get psychiatric help. And these institutions need to be reopened, revitalized, and rebuilt so that we can get a handle on, on this problem, which is, as I say, plays into the criminal justice issue because many of the people arrested, many of the people jailed, and even imprisoned are there in part because of mental disorders. So, you know, it would help us 
in terms of aiding the people who have the issues, helping mm -hmm. clear the streets of people who are mentally disabled, which is a large percentage of the uh, so-called homeless population, and also reducing the crime problem. Because when they commit crimes, the police, of course, are called in. So I think it's win, 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 and we re need to reopen the psychiatric uh, hospitals. Yes, and obviously, like there is, there would have to be a lot of oversight when it comes to civil liberties and things like that. It's especially difficult for those who don't have family advocating for them, making sure that their best interests are being sought after. I do wonder even about this whole Jordan Neely thing. I didn't even, I, I figured, you know, the guy probably doesn't have family. He's obviously homeless. He's on the subway. He's harassing mm -hmm. people. And then mm -hmm. the family pops up when there is a television camera in front of them and when there is money to be sought after. And I just wonder, where were you? Where were you yeah. when this person was yeah. harassing and assaulting people on the subway and was arrested yeah. 44 times and needed your support then? I mean, who knows? I can't completely judge them because I don't know the entire situation, but now they've been able to hire lawyers and all of that. These people really need more than anything some kind of familial support, someone who loves them enough to say, no, I'm not going to let you live that way. I think the lack of support, lack of family structure is also just a huge problem that exacerbates crime, it seems. Yeah, I think, uh, Ali, these people uh, are so difficult to help and manage and care yeah. for. You'd have to devote your life and your time. And, you know, people have their own families. They have jobs. And if a loved one is in this terrible situation, it can be extremely difficult on the family to care for him. And so you're right, of course, they just popped up at the last minute. Maybe the lawyers encouraged them and said, you can make money off this. But the, the truth is, these people need professional care. Yeah. They can't be cared for by their families right. often. And, you know, they're grownups. And if they yeah. say, I'm not staying here, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'd rather be out on my own. Well, what can you do about that? Mm -hmm. Not much. Yeah, so, that's very true. Uh, you know, I'm sympathetic to the families, too. But I, I take your point that uh, there should have been earlier interventions. Yeah. But there's no place for them. If they put them in a halfway house, uh, they, they can leave. Yeah. on their own, at their own, you know, free will, they can leave. And then they don't take their meds. And yeah. then we have psychotic episodes, crime and, and you know, horrible yeah. situations. You know, so, it's, it's true. Access to real mental health services, especially where you can go live somewhere. It seems like that's really only accessible for people who have just tens of thousands of dollars to be able to spend. I mean, I, yeah. I I know people who have had that get real help, you know, rehabilitation and things like that. And I know how much it costs to go to a nice place that is going to really take care of you and to really help you. I mean, it's true. Most most families, even if they want to help and can help, they can't. They just can't afford the help. And so I agree. That's a huge, huge problem. Yeah. Yeah, we really need to re rethink our views. I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when they closed so many of these hospitals, Allie, and the yes. argument was, you know, they're abusive, they're mistreating people, and there were some horror stories. There were. But of course, they were exaggerated, 
and the whole movement to deinstitutionalize, as they called it, uh, it, it, it snowballed. It, it, it gained a lot of traction, in part because of these incidents that occurred. And then, of course, you even had uh, the, the uh, culture in general supporting this. I can recall the movie, maybe you've seen it on video, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. Yeah, it's a yeah. classic, right? Yeah. And I remember when it came out, and of course, it, 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 I'm not blaming the movie, obviously, but the movie presented what was then the prevailing view, which is that these places restrain people and keep them from freely living their own lives, yeah. living the way they want to live. But of course, you know, that was one side of the story and it was not the only side yeah. to the story. So, yeah, so that's this, interesting. This turned out to be a very, a very bad policy choice. Yes. Uh, and it's especially bad for big cities, as we see now with San Francisco and cities where the weather is warm. People are out in the streets all the time. Camp, yeah. they camp in the streets. And what about the public's uh, right to use these public spaces, mm. parks and streets? Uh, no consideration is is even given to that sometimes. Right. Now it's an awful policy, a big mistake, big mistake. Yeah. But not too late. We're we we're we're wealthy enough. We could reverse this and and start down a different road. Yeah, and hopefully, I think that there is growing bipartisan support for that because you don't have to be a Republican to say I want to be able to take my kid to the park in San Francisco without stepping yeah. over needles or getting my car I hijacked. I saw some viral thread on Twitter um, of someone. He took his kid to the park. He was gone for 45 minutes. He knew that you can't leave anything in your car in San Francisco. But someone broke into his car, glass all over the car seat. And then he, you know, calls the police and he knows the police aren't going to do anything. But just for the statistics, he just wanted to file the report. Well, even that is a complicated process that takes hours to do. And so but then San Francisco will say things like, well, crime is down. But that's probably because they don't even have the system in place to properly report the crime. Um, <laughs> so that's a whole problem in itself. But I did just want to say something about the psychiatric hospitals, because most of the things yes. that we're talking about are, about are the failure of uh, progressive policies. But it was Ronald Reagan. He was one of the people who really in California and then continued to push for the closing down of these psychiatric hospitals. And that was 19. 80 was the um, the Mental Health Systems Act of 1980. And then I just mm -hmm. wanted to see the uh, if there was any like coinciding timeline. And I don't know if, you know, it was inspired by this at all. But One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is a great film, yeah. by the way. That was 1975. Yes. So I'm sure they were right. kind of happening simultaneously as maybe, I don't yeah. know, society in general had less tolerance for these mental health institutions. But Reagan's policies in California and then nationally and one flew over the cuckoo's nest, they do kind of overlap. So it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting how yeah. that happened. Look, I mean, you know, you probe any politician's position and if he's been around long enough, you're going to find him that he's taken some positions that may be embarrassing later on. Joe Biden was the one who shepherded through the U.S. Senate the Crime Control Act of 1994. 
Of course, he doesn't want to remind his progressive supporters about yeah, that. Right. That was a pretty strong criminal justice uh, bill. And he was the one of the leaders who got it through the, the Senate. Yeah. So, you know, if a politician has been around long enough, he probably has uh, taken positions that embarrass him nowadays. But yeah, uh, hindsight is no. So what? That, it doesn't matter. We need to pick the right path yeah. and stay on it, whether it's Republicans or Democrats right. in charge. All right, last sponsor for the day, and that is My Patriot Supply. So we're seeing all kinds of crazy stuff when it comes to farming, not just in the United States, but also abroad with farms being shut down. We're seeing supply chain issues. We are still seeing the prices surge. We don't know when it's going to become totally untenable, like when things are really going to hit the fan and we actually have to tap into some kind of emergency food supply. You just want to make sure that you're prepared, that you're taking care of. You don't want to get in a situation where you don't have a water supply. You don't have any food to eat. And hopefully we'll never have to use this emergency food. That's the desire, but it's always better to be safe than sorry. That's why we have our three-month emergency food supply kits from My Patriot Supply stowed away. Um, With each kit you order, you receive also a bonus bundle of essential survival gear worth over $200 absolutely for free. You'll want to get one three-month emergency food kit for everyone in your family. It lasts 30 years. Again, hopefully you'll never need it, but if you do, it's there. You will be glad that you have it. So go to preparewithally.com for your three-month emer- emergency food kits and also that free survival gear. Preparewithally.com. Preparewithally.com. Okay, I want to talk about this migrant crisis. That's actually what we originally, we saw your opinion piece Um in the Wall Street Journal titled, This Isn't the First Migrant Crisis. That's why we wanted to have you on. But then we just got into this interesting conversation. But they're not disconnected. I mean, these things are connected in some way, just the systems in America and how they're failing and things. But um, your main argument is that this is not the first migrant crisis. You're referring to the end of Title 42, the expected surge of migrants. Of course, we've seen this over the past few years. But especially concerned right now with Title 42, which was the remain in Mexico policy. Trump, because of COVID, was able to say, "Okay, if you come here, you got to remain in Mexico until we decide what to do with you, basically. Um, So a lot of people are concerned that the migrant crisis is going to get even worse. We're not securing our border. Mayorkas doesn't seem to care. What's your take on all of that? Uh, Let me preface this by saying I'm not really an expert on immigration, notwithstanding that op-ed. And also, the Biden administration has come up with a new policy. It's very complicated, actually. I read through it. I don't know it in detail, but it's a very complicated policy. So they are trying to address the situation. But whether they can actually implement this policy, part of which involves people staying in Mexico and applying for asylum when when they are asylum applicants. Um, So part of this is borrowing, you know, from the Trump era uh, policies, whether this will work or not is a whole other question. Now, first, on the issue of whether uh, illegal immigrants, let's call them uh, people who come here illegally, are uh, committing uh, crimes or contributing to the crime rise. 
the answer is we don't know yet. Uh, and I know that sounds like a cop-out alley, but that's the fact. It's very hard to get data on this sort of thing. Uh, it's hard because uh, we don't separately track people who enter the United States illegally and offenders who may be of Hispanic heritage and may have come here perfectly legally. We don't make those distinctions. And so it's very difficult to say for sure whether illegal entrants have uh, raised the crime rates uh, in the United States. Of course, one response to that is, well, it shouldn't really matter if they're here illegally. We don't want them to be free to move about the country. And, and I agree with that. But whether that contributes to a crime increase, we don't know. Now, one of the things that I'm proposing for the criminal justice system, and this has application to the immigration system as well, is to use electronic monitoring much more than we've been doing. I think it would have an application to people who are released from prison and are put on parole. They have a very high recidivism rate, over 80% are rearrested after they're released. And a tracking system, an electronic monitoring system, would be very useful for this cohort. But also, immigrants who are released into the United States, who are asking for asylum, and who are released into the United States pending their hearing, they should also be tracked. And there was something in the Biden administration's proposal providing for this. And I'm in favor of this. This is an expanded use of electronic monitoring as well. And we should be able to track them because otherwise they don't show up for their hearings and they just skip and get lost into the vast United States. And then, of course, we don't find them again or we only find them again if they're arrested and have committed a crime. So I think tracking ex-prisoners tracking uh, uh, migrants who are asking for asylum, most of which, by the way, are uh, really bogus claims. They aren't able to get asylum, at least mm -hmm. not the way the law is uh, written. Uh, these people, it seems to me, would be perfect subjects of electronic monitoring. So I, I think it would be useful in the criminal justice system and it would be useful in the immigration system. Very useful, very helpful. Right. Yeah, I think that that's a I think that's a really good point. So we don't quite know if there is a direct causal relationship between the surge of migrants and and crime. Now, I, I mean, we could probably deduce that like any surge of new uh, like a, a new crowd of people, anytime something, a, a place is more densely packed, especially with people we don't know their background, they're not familiar with the laws. It tends to be just kind of common sense that, yes, this is going to cause more crime, more chaos, fewer resources. But you're saying that the data doesn't necessarily prove that yet. It, it's early days. That's what yeah. I'm saying. It's early times. We don't know. By the way, what you're saying is historically absolutely correct. When there are migrations into the cities of the United States and the group entering, the migrant group, has high crime rate backgrounds, 
it does contribute to higher crime rates in the destination area. Mm. So you're absolutely right about that. And it also overtaxes the criminal justice and other systems in the destination location. So we've seen this throughout history, throughout American history. We just don't know if this migrant group from South America, Latin America, Central America, falls into that category. Many of them are really just economic migrants. They're here because they think they can earn more money and get better jobs, which they undoubtedly could. And some are also here because they think they could stay long enough for their children to have better opportunities for advancement, which they could as well. Of course, that doesn't make their entry lawful, and uh, it doesn't really meet the requirements for asylum. Asylum is supposed to be granted for people who are being persecuted, politically persecuted, for instance. So that's not really applicable. But right. yes, you're absolutely right to say that when you have a migration of sizable proportion and the migrant group has high crime rates or had high crime rates in its country of origin or its mm -hmm. locale of origin, then they will raise the crime rates in the destination locale. That is historically right. correct. Right. And, you know, a lot of people on the progressive side will say, well, you know, citizens commit crimes, too. We shouldn't, you know, highlight illegal immigrants. But of course, the difference in a crime committed by an illegal immigrant and a crime committed by a citizen is that the crime committed by an illegal immigrant was, I mean, theoretically completely preventable by another or another law that should have prevented them from even being here in the first place. So it's just an even bigger failure of the system, which is why I think it matters even more when those crimes yes. do actually occur. Yes, you're so right. That's absolutely correct. Obviously, it's preventable because they should never have been here in the first place if they've entered illegally. Now, by the way, there are other policies we should start seriously thinking about to uh, arrest this issue. And that is, for instance, if really they're economic migrants looking for work, now that we have a situation where there's very little unemployment in the United States, it's around 4.3% or something like that, there are many jobs that are open and unfilled. And here we have people who do want to come here and work. So, wow, why not match up the people who want to emigrate to the United States for work and the job openings? It seems like a no-brainer to me. Mm -hmm. It's time to really beef up our uh, legal entries with visas that enable people to stay here for short times, a few years perhaps, and work in the United States, work in, in fields where we need the labor. We, we can use them. By the way, the Europeans are doing this. In the Wall Street Journal just today, there was an article to that effect. Why can't we do it too? If we find we need people to work in certain fields, why not give people who want to be in the United States and have these skills or don't have skills, as the case may be, why not give them an opportunity to get these jobs and hold these jobs? They won't be taking jobs away from Native American citizens because they're not taking those jobs. That's why there are job openings.
So this is another missed opportunity as, as far as I'm concerned. Of course, we both know the reason for all of these really errors in, in, in policy, and that is because the country's polarized, the politicians are polarized, and they can't seem to reach any compromises. And in the immigration field, this has been going on for years, and it's a disaster. Yeah. And there's a big debate on the right about even legal immigration. How much legal immigration should we actually support? Republicans don't even necessarily agree on that. So I just want to acknowledge the debate. We won't even get into all of that. But I do think Mm. that everyone can agree that Florida, for example, they just um, have decided to require all employers to use E-Verify, which checks the immigration status of all the people that they're hiring. And that, in addition Mm. to what you're talking about, electronic monitoring for people who are in the country awaiting all of that, I think that that could be really good. There are things to be put in place in states and on the national level that could actually help. But you're right. There's very little motivation, I think, especially on the Democrat side. I actually saw that 71 percent, I believe, of illegal migrants end up in Republican areas, which is just interesting. I don't know if there's anything behind that. but It's just an interesting thing to note. Um, So it's chaos. And you know what? It does kind of relate to the whole like New York City subway thing. All of these feeling like you are not being taken care of, feeling like no one really cares. The people in charge who are supposed to care about the general welfare and security and stability of the country. They don't seem to care and they seem to be inducing chaos. It leads to a sense of distrust and restlessness and angst in the public that can only lead, I think, to further violence, further polarization. When you don't feel like the government, your own government has your back just for the general safety of the border or crime, I mean, bare minimum government responsibilities, then you're looking at a very unstable future, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is alienating to use uh, to use that, a, a word uh, that political scientists often use. It's very alienating when people have a sense, right or wrong, but in this case, I think it's right, that uh, the governments are just not doing their job Uh, I mean, if they can't control people entering into the country illegally, uh, you have to wonder, right? If they can't punish uh, criminals on the streets, it it doesn't give you a lot of confidence in the local Mm -hmm. uh, system. I think uh, this explains why a lot of people are really alienated from the system, uh, probably don't vote at all think that the system is really run by a cabal, uh, by some uh, uh, people who are engaged in a conspiracy. Um, uh, You get these kinds of theories, which are kind of wacky in my opinion, because people are so alienated, because Mm -hmm. people are so convinced that the government is is just ineffective. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean just the federal government. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it really is dispiriting. It, it's a it's mm-hmm. a kind of malaise situation to use a word that some yeah. previous president got in trouble for using it. That was Jimmy Carter, by the way. Who, I'm, I'm not even sure he used that word. <laughs> anyway, it it is a dispiriting and disheartening situation. Yeah. Um, and uh, 
you know, the answers are we do need to compromise. And I think there probably is a pretty substantial group, I hope so, of uh, Democrats and Republicans of ideologically conservative and ideologically uh, left uh, Americans who would like to see the government compromise and come up with proper policies on well, crime is a different story because that's really locally run. That's state and, and municipally run. But certainly the border issue, they ought to be able to reach a compromise. But look, they're going to push this uh, debt ceiling issue right to the last days, probably. They, they are having a hard time compromising even on that, even on meeting the debts of the United States. I mean, that's really scary, isn't it? Yeah. But here they are working up to the very last minute. And of course, they, they won't go over the cliff because I think each each side, the Republicans and the Democrats are afraid of being blamed for it if they do. Yeah. So I think they'll come up with something. But it's, uh, it's sort of disheartening to see them yeah. having, you know, an, an inability to agree even on that, yeah. even on those fundamental fundamental things yeah good point you're right good point oh right. yeah go ahead no no i was just gonna say good point i think you oh. put your finger on it people it it really is disheartening and mm -hmm. and and as i said alienating when yeah. when people expect these basics to 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 be to be satisfied and and they're not yeah you know i think when it comes to maybe local level but national level too um, because things seem just so chaotic, it seems like everyone kind of feels that, especially in these cities. But and then, you know, the right and the left feel that for different reasons. I think the right is especially yes. they feel the moral chaos that we see going on. The left might feel it for, you know, whatever reason. But I think mm -hmm. in the end, the anti-chaos um, whoever is perceived as the anti-chaos candidate, especially when it comes to the president in the next year, is going to be the one who wins. Last time, Trump was not seen as the anti-chaos president, even though I think that Biden's policies are very chaotic. But he hmm. presented himself as a vessel of normalcy, as um, a vessel of unity and just calming the waters after the turbulent Trump years. And I think in the end, that's what people are vying for. Give us some normalcy, calm the waters. I think even Democrats would say, yeah, lock these people up in jail. I'm tired of not being able to walk in downtown San Francisco. Um, so we'll yeah. see. But yeah. thank you so yeah. much, Mr. Latzer, for taking the time to come on. I do encourage everyone to get your most recent book. You've written several, but uh, The Myth of Overpunishment, mm. a, defense of, a Defense of the American Justice System and a Proposal mm. to Reduce Incarceration While Protecting the Public. Very, very fascinating. Um, thank you for taking the time to come on. Well, it was a pleasure. It was really an interesting conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you.